our final episode. And uh, we're all the way at the end here. So uh, Women in the Priesthood, which is an interesting way to end the book, I suppose. Um, I think I'm assuming that this is here, obviously not just because she has some things she wants to say, but because it would seem to be something in the air, I guess, especially if the book is about different issues that feminism has had the church's teaching. I'm going to assume that's the reason why it's here, even if it's placement all the way at the end isn't exactly the note that I would have thought she would end on, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I just said before we started recording that I didn't get this chapter. I get it in the fact that I understand what she's trying to say, but it just seems like an odd thing to end on. Like I said, and then the other thing is, I mean, I guess, you know, there are certain like theological arguments and things that it just is like so obviously wrong to me that I always like kind of wonder when we tap into those arguments more and legitimately look at them, um, why sometimes mm-hmm. like with, with, within the context of like the conversation of like who who's reading this book you know what i mean and and maybe it is radical feminist but something tells me that a radical feminist would throw this book down the moment they got through page 3 you know so it's just odd but maybe she's bringing it up because it is in the air i, th- I think especially thinking about her location that was like what i thought about because she was in boston and or at least she ended her life in boston and and up there in the Northeast in the U.S., there is definitely very, very, very big movements for women in the priesthood. Um, we know that we, with our theologian friends up there as well, that that's something that was shocking to them that they faced in their diocese when they moved there, etc. Um, and so I think there are different like places in the world, and, and she was in one of them where this is a conversation. But in general, like Catholic, like faithfully Catholic circles... I just, like, it's really just not even a conversation to be had in my mind. And the other thing I'll say is that I didn't really feel like she argued for it. Like, she didn't go into a bunch of theological arguments. She just sort of said why it's not fitting. So I didn't, that's why I just didn't really get the chapter. So it seems like, yeah, I think that that's probably true. It almost seems like an appendix as it didn't seem to fit in. Um, in a really harmonious way with the other five chapters because it seems like they all fit a particular theme and this was just about a particular question. So it almost did seem like an appendix sort of stuck on at the end. It would seem like last um, the chapter we covered last week on um, women and motherhood would have been a kind of fitting end to the goal. It seems like she wanted to accomplish from the outset that she talks about. But I think that, I think that on the one hand, you're probably right, right? The person who gets all the way to chapter six probably doesn't have a sort of burning question about this in particular, but I do think the kind of person who would read this book might need some, uh, you know, might, might need some stuff to chew on as far as this particular question. Cause it's probably a question that they would get asked. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's that. That's number one for pro for this ending chapter. And then number two is, and I'm not trying to be overly critical, by the way, like she wrote a book. I mean, 
she's amazing. Um, but number two, I wish almost that she just did it on the priesthood, wrote it on the priesthood, and that's all. Like, not in relationship to, like, the fight of women trying to become priests, but maybe, like, talking about the woman's role in the church in relation to, like, how the church sees women in the way that she did, but then also talk about the priesthood and the priest's role rather than, like, to me it was, like, trying to argue that women shouldn't be priests, but there wasn't actually any of the bulk, like, real arguments in there, like, that you normally find within that theological conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that the most... And it, it it's interesting because in, at least in this edition, there's a different typeface for this particular quotation and they put it in bold. I'm trying to find the exact page where she puts it. Oh, it's on page 163. And it's, it's, she talks about how maternity and the priesthood are too weighty to be carried at the same time. Yeah. Essentially. And so there is a lot that she talks about as far as how they're not compatible. And it's true that she doesn't spend a lot of time on what the priesthood actually is or what it actually involves or what it's, you know, too much of what it's meant to be. It is much more, it seems to be much more about her continuing her thread of thought on what women are meant to do and what they're not meant to do based mm. on their identity. And well, I mean, one of the big things that she talks about, she doesn't mention the word Gnosticism, but that's really essentially the reason why you would tend to view this question as an open question, because a lot of the objections to, well, why, why can't women be priests? She, she, ta- she brings up that objection mm-hmm. a lot. And essentially, you know, what she the, the overview, she kind of sums up a lot of the arguments essentially by saying, well, the objections typically boil down to, well, why can't they? Because it seems like that's kind of oppressive. And it seems like a woman could do a really good job with a lot of the, with a lot of the, the activity mm-hmm. that a priest needs to do as far as their pastoral empathy and their ability to multitask. And, you know, it's especially in the modern world, right, to be organized and to do that kind of thing. It seems like a woman could probably do a better job at a lot of those practical things than a man. And her answer essentially boils down to, well, if if you view men and women as interchangeable the way that the Gnostics did, and essentially you know, ancient Gnosticism is, involved a lot of things, but as far as this, as far as what we're concerned about is there was either a hatred for or an indifference to the material. Your your goal in life was to escape the body because it didn't. that's not what really mattered. What really mattered was your mind and your heart and the intellect and the soul. And so the body didn't really matter so much. And I think you can see that in a lot of gender ideology nowadays, that mm-hmm. it's really who you are on the inside. That's the real you and the outside you might fit that and it might not. And so if it doesn't, you could just change it because it's, it's just matter. It's just material. It's just a body. You can sort of mix and match and fashion it however you want. And so this question about, well, why not? It's if, if you view things in purely biological terms, then that might be true. But that's not the case, right? She talks a lot about different reasons why this might be. And another thing she brings up is that it's not just a matter of positive law either. That's how she starts the chapter, which is interesting because a lot of people assume, well, the church is mean because they say women can't be priests and they could change it if they want. Mm-hmm. 
and that's also just not the case. It's really similar. It's 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 similar to how, um, in in some ways, it is different. Obviously, it's similar to how the Eucharist needs to be bread and wine. It's not just something that the church decided at some point, right? And they could just change it, right? It's oh well, you know, in in the American South, um, you know, maybe in New Mexico. Maybe it would be more culturally relevant for them to use uh, tortillas and tequila, right? Because that's more, you know, that's a part of the culture of festivity in the Southwest. So we use different (laughs) materials, right? I mean, the church had to answer this question when the Jesuits went to to evangelize Asia, right? They asked about rice bread Mm -hmm. and rice crackers, that kind of thing, for the Eucharist is that licit material and the church said no. And it wasn't just because the church is being a bully or they just want their power. Essentially what the church says is this isn't a matter of positive law. This is a matter of divine revelation. Mm-hmm. Christ did this and the church doesn't have the power to change it mm-hmm. because it's received from its divine origin. And so this is very similar. It's, it's a lot different Say, saying that women can't be priests is a matter of, dogma and divine revelation when it's different than because a lot of people also associate it with the idea of celibacy because the church has long said well that is a positive law because there are apostolic traditions for priestly celibacy and apostolic traditions in the east for that not being the case in all cases right so priestly celibacy in the west is a discipline that could be changed right but the church has always said and this is what john paul said in um, I think it's called Sacerdotia Ordin. I, I can't remember what the Latin name of it is. Anyway, there's a document in the 90s, I think, that basically answers this question. And then John Paul writes and basically says the church doesn't have the power yeah. to do anything but ordain men because that's what Christ did. And so it would be an overreach, right? which the church simply doesn't have the power. Just It literally can't do that. So she makes that point at the very beginning. That it's not a matter of positive law. And she goes through a bunch of different sort of arguments from fittiness about how this actually does make sense. So if you view it in purely utilitarian terms, well, what's, you know, what's a woman able to accomplish or do, or what kind of activity can she do, right? We've talked this whole time about the equal dignity of men and women. And so that's not really the case. It's simply a matter of divinely revealed information, right? Christ did this. And so that's what we do too. Right? Mm-hmm. The church as his bride submits to her head, right? Christ did this. And so that's what we do now as well. Right. And something I thought was really interesting. She brings this up multiple times. She talks about, well, um, and, and on the flip side, we know that God chooses the weak. And so that's probably, and so there's in some fashion, right? God chooses, she talks about choosing Peter over John to be the Bishop of Rome, to mm-hmm. be the rock. Right. And you think, well, would you rather be Peter? Would you rather be John? If you view this stuff purely in terms of power, then you're going to be viewing it totally wrong. But Christ chooses Peter in a sense because he's weak. And so it's very obvious that this is a divine work done in him. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a tongue in cheek when she talks about God choosing men to be priests because he chooses the weak. It's a little, you know, it's sort of a little bit of, you know, elbow in the ribs, (laughs) a little bit humorous. So I think when you look biblically, it's just so clear about this authority and of Christ and how he's established it for men. But he also 
the Lord really gave women a particular role. And I think that's what she does so well here. So she's not getting into like the big theological debates and all the details and everything, but she does a really great job at showing like women do have a place. It's unfitting for them to be priests. We're not going to dig into that, but they are so they, their role is particularly cherished in the church as it is. And, and I think like the biggest thing is, and recently, like right now in our culture, specifically now, it is a huge trend to say like, you can be whatever you want to be. And especially like telling women this, like you be whatever you want to be. And that is a lie. We don't get to be whatever we want to be. We need to be who God wants us to be. We need to be who we're made to be. And, and so when you look at it that way, and you see the freedom of finding your identity in Christ and not in yourself, not in self, um, like, well, you do find it in yourself if you really reflect. But if you're paying attention to what God says, like as he made you and you enter into that, you begin to cherish your role because you see the dignity of it as a son and daughter of God. And and so like on... um on page 156, she, she talks about how, you know, it can seem that the church is organized and dominated by the male sex. And the thing is, we could make the same arguments here that she's making on what marriage is. You know what I mean? Where there's like a threat to woman in acknowledging like the leadership role of the man in marriage when in reality when we look at a healthy marriage and a a godly marriage it, it there is the head and there's also the heart and both have this dignity and and so it's the same thing when we sort of take a step back and look in this wider picture of the church in that women have a particular role And instead of saying, I don't want to do this role, I want to do what the man is doing, like that is not a true acknowledgement of the beauty of womanhood and femininity. It's running from womanhood and femininity. It's saying, I don't want to be this. And that's where the feminists get it all wrong is they're saying that it's not good enough. It's not worthy enough to be a woman. And so that's what I think she does a really powerful job at in this chapter is showing that if we enter into our role, we will see the value in it instead of running from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause the other thing is it's, it's not, cause it usually gets put as a male versus female thing. Oh, women can't do this and men do this. But in reality, it's also only, only a very small percentage of men as well. So it's not even all men. Cause that's especially the, even the language that the church uses about ordaining its priests it's not something that you grasp at it's not something that you choose you have to be called to it Mm -hmm. and so you can feel like you're called to the priesthood but ultimately it's not even your decision you can't just decide i'm called to the priesthood so i'm going to go be a priest you can you can think that you can make that decision you can go talk to the bishop and enter seminary but at the end of it even you know the you know the seminarians the friars 
you know, even that I, I teach now still use the language of, well, you know, God willing, I'll be ordained a priest. Because even, you know, years into seminary, there could be something where the bishop would just decide, you know what, no. And they'd have to be obedient to that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they can just go out on their own and, and be a priest. It's something that the church has to call you to. And she hits on that with the women who say, because this is this is what we saw like with our, our friends. I'm not going to name or where they are and, and stuff, but they're theologians in the theology world and um they face this issues of women wanting to be priests but like the major thing is i feel like i'm called to the priesthood i feel like i'm called to the priesthood and you can feel like anything you can feel you know like i i actually am supposed to be a boy i feel like i'm supposed to be a boy i feel like i'm supposed to be a girl i feel like i'm supposed to be a cat actually well i think that's why i was really important and beneficial that she includes that letter from Therese at the end of this chapter yeah where Therese talks about I wish you know I feel like I could do all of these things I wish I could be all these things and she sort of goes on this sort of long extended internal dialogue about this and at the end it's very Augustinian in that way but in the end she essentially comes to the conclusion but I realized reading scripture that Paul tells us that we can't all be all things and yeah. that each has their role. And so I have accepted this and I've discovered this for myself, right? My vocation actually is love. Yes. And so it's really sort of a powerful way to finish. It is really um, powerful. And I, I, yeah, no, go, go ahead. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I think actually, you know, what we're hitting on right now is this sense of identity that you can see through this whole book is the most important part of this thesis is of knowing who we are and cherishing it and seeing the value and dignity in who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's why it's also important that she included that little section on the Marian dimension of all of this too, right? There's, there's a certain sense in which, uh, you know, if, if any woman, she, she says, it's, it's really interesting, right? She talks about, I think she quotes, um, Mother Teresa about this, right? If anyone in history, if any human being in history had the right to say the words that the priest does at the consecration about you know, this is my body, this is my blood, it was Mary because that's <laughs> she's the it only human. It was literally her body and blood. That, that yeah. was actually true, right? Because yeah. Christ came from her womb. Um, and so, if if anyone deserves the priesthood in that sense, right? Scare quotes. So, you know, if anyone deserves the priesthood, it would seem to be her but it's not. And so that tells you what the priesthood actually is about. It's not about this kind of natural or, you know, supernatural hierarchy about, well, if you are the best, then you get to be the priest. Right. It's not about that at all. It has nothing to do with how good you are or whether you're the best, or okay. it's not about, you know, how much power you happen to have or how much respect that you should demand in your own person. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's about whether or not you're particularly called to it yes and it also shows directly what women are meant to be and that is mothers mm -hmm. just like our lady yeah she includes that really interesting quip about um you know a woman you know a, a man as a priest can be both um right father and son but a woman can't be mother and son. So if the priest is meant to imitate Christ and act in Christ's persona as the son, right, then it's fitting that a man do that and not a woman. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to that kind of 
faulty metaphysical origin of this with the Gnosticism, where it's, well, it's the biological, doesn't matter at all. There's a sense in which it matters less, right? It's why, which why, you know, Paul says, you know, what he does about, you know, it's now in Christ, there's neither male nor female nor Gentile nor Jew. He doesn't mean that just everyone just becomes a kind of generic human being X, right? But he's saying, you know, by grace, we can overcome these differences, not that the differences disappear. And so this idea that a woman can't be a mother and a son at the same time is part of her argument for fittingness why it's fitting that Christ chose men, because even though Christ is all things to everyone, and there's a sense in which he kind of transcends that category because he's a divine person and he contains the whole universe in himself, he's still male and he chose men. And so, like we said at the beginning, right, the church just doesn't have the power. And so we can, the, the job that we can do is show how that's actually not a kind of discriminatory oppressive kind of thing that the church does and it's simply her being obedient to god as she does and attempts to do in all other things yeah i think that's a great way to end the chapter and i guess i would just ask like what did you think of the book this was the first time you read it it's the second time i read it and i thought you know second time around it was still just as powerful the first time around it it really really shook me like I was just so struck by so much of what she said because it's so it's like you said she doesn't expand on a ton of things into depth like but she says so much like it's rich with these different like gems of information that you're like oh yeah wow why didn't I think of that wow and she's rooted in good philosophy and for me That's something that in this argument of man and woman and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, which I'll talk about in a minute after I hear your thoughts, but what it means to be a woman, when I look at that, I, I think that what it comes down to in figuring out the truth is good and bad philosophy. And so if we are not reading good philosophy, we are not going to have an ordered understanding of what it means to be a woman um, very easily. Like maybe maybe it's passed down to you. Like, goodness, what a <laughs> gift, you know? But if it's not passed down to you yeah. and you're just out in the world, we need good philosophy to be steeped in like a proper understanding because we are being fed so much bad philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting. What do I think about the book? Um, I think it would be a really useful book for engaged couples to read Mm. honestly because i think we've we've talked a lot about how there's there's kind of a gap in a lot of marriage prep programs in sacramental preparation in the church and you know there's a billion reasons for that it's just you know it kind of just depends on what well, church you go to your parents to and... would prepare you but you know well that's yeah that's that's a conversation for, <laughs> for another day because uh-huh. that's yeah that's what i always say like, you know people yeah. like what's the best marriage prep program and i say well have a good have good parents yeah but you don't yeah. really have control over that right yep. um but regardless of that uh, i think that this book would be really good for people who are um I mean, obviously it's good for men and women to read at any point in their life, but maybe specifically if there are, you know, couples who are 
discerning marriage or are engaged or recently married, that kind of thing. And they're looking to try and figure out how to best live out their married life and how to either, um, you know, transform their relationship or simply just inform it or make it better and be more conscious and intentional about things. I think it would be a really good book for people to read because it's not too, it's not too difficult. It's not filled up with a bunch of, you know, academic footnotes. It's, you know, it's really, it seems really accessible to me in a way that is a good, would provide a lot of good conversation starters for a lot of people, especially if it's something that they're unfamiliar with. That's kind of because we've talked about how, well, she doesn't expand on a bunch of things. And that might actually be a good thing for that particular context. Yeah, and it probably, yeah. it, it seems to raise a lot of questions and give a really good perspective on things without pretending to solve all of the problems in the book itself. Right. Right. And that's exactly it. It's more like, here's some some things to consider it's like a bunch of appetizers <laughs> go and think about them she does this with modesty too a lot and then like yeah there's i mean there's a whole thing i could say on her she like she has very extensive thoughts on modesty but she doesn't write about it but she always like plants the seeds with these things and then she's like here go run like you know like pray with this think about it look into what the church says look into good philosophy Okay. And the, the last thing that I want to say is this is, it, it's particularly, she's particularly concerned with women, even though she's talking about the relationship of man and woman, like it's clearly written with um, a particular emphasis on a woman's role, which is very fitting. Like she's fighting feminism and showing that femininity is the way and like the value of womanhood. But I wish uh, not but and also that's what I should say and also is that there was a, a sort of male version of this book because in this book we're so focused particularly on women and rightly so because she's a philosopher who is fighting feminism and um, is showing the dignity of women and so there's a even though it's written about man and woman there's a particular emphasis on the dignity of woman in this book because that's like her mission and I wish there was a male version that fought toxic masculinity and this sort of putting men down and you know I think of like the 90s sitcoms where you know men are just sort of bossed around by women and these sorts of things like I I think that in our world today too we need a man to like write a book about what it means to be a man like we need this too I I don't know if there's a book out there that's like this I mean maybe there is but but I would be I, I think like what's so particularly special about Alice is that she's so steeped in tradition theology and philosophy that it's not just like it's not uh, surface level. It's very intellectual. It's very based on something much deeper than how we feel and, you know, just sort of like basic arguments that we might see on social media or things like that. Like it's really, she's steeped in something that's, um, that takes, that's heady and that takes, um, a little bit of work to dig into. And I think we need that for men. Sure. I think, so I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think it might be a little more difficult to do because from my particular perspective, it almost seems like 
men have a less clearly defined role because women have such a clearly defined role, at least as what we've been talking about, it would seem like towards maternity, right? Where it's much more specified in that sense. And so there's almost a, there's almost a sense in which there's a clearer definition of what that means. And from my perspective, it almost seems like as far as what men and husbands, I guess, in this particular sense, it would seem like the husband is meant to kind of meld himself around that and sort of be all things to all members of his family, right? In a sense where it's, you know, and maybe you could say, well, that's just, so that, so that's, maybe that's what it means. Tell me what you mean by that more, because I do think there's like particular characteristics of man that like we can like dig into like his leadership role. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be like the leader of the home and, um, and lead spiritually and also like provide for the family, like all of these things. Like she does this with woman even, and still like recognizes that there are outliers. Like, I think you can do that with, with men okay, as well. If, yeah. If that's the case, then I guess that makes a lot of sense too. I guess I was just thinking about the fact that, to me, it seems like men are just meant to, they're called to be whatever they're, whatever they have to be for their particular family. And that's going to look really different as opposed to if we're talking about marriage in particular, and we're talking about, well, women are ordered towards motherhood. What are men ordered to? Well, fatherhood. And it's a little more, it's a little more outside themselves. We talked about that a lot, mm-hmm. how this this particular activity, this particular relationship, right? In women, it's very internal. It's within their own being. And for men, it's about activity. Mm-hmm. And so maybe all I'm trying to say is that it would seem like the kind of masculine role would be what, you know, Paul says about how he is all things to all people, right? Whatever the situation calls for, like, that's what you have to be. And so maybe that's a particular kind of, um, like servant leadership. I think there's a hero is heroism in that. Yeah. And, and I think maybe Mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about is like, but I don't think a lot of men know that like there, there's like such a starve, starving starvation, (laughs) um, in, in the world right now for identity and, um, and acknowledging the role, you know, Mm -hmm. to be like a knight to, to their yeah. family. Like, okay. cause I think that's what you're saying is like a yeah. sort of knighthood. Right. Yeah. Cause it's in, in my mind, it's just, it's the, it's the couplet in, in Ephesians, right. A lot is made about that. The line in Ephesians about women um, being submissive. Right. But a lot of people forget that the man is called to do what Christ does for the church. Right. That's what he is ordered to do. And that means death. And yeah. so that's sort of what it is in my mind. And, you know, typically, right, most husbands don't actually literally die (laughs) for their wives. Um, But as far as family life goes, right, we've kind of a, you know, this, we haven't talked a lot about how marriage can be a cross, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, But it is, so even if your marriage is really great and there's really no problems in your marriage, it's still meant to be a cross in the sense that it's still meant to be something that you pick up and take on every day and choose. And for men, in a lot of ways, that means dying to yourself in little ways, even even if it is just little ways, right? It's not about you, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Everything as a man, as a husband should be about how do I make life better for my wife? And if I have them, 
the children at my own expense, essentially. Mm-hmm. The laying down of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's really powerful. Well, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed yeah. this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. We hope you did too. And we'll see you with the next one. Yeah. I don't know what that will be. Not yet. No. I need to have a baby. <laughs> yeah. So taking uh-huh. a break here. <laughs> also in launch a book. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, on the website, I think I put up uh, to be determined for whatever we happen to do for Advent and Christmas. Yeah. So I don't know, but that's whatever. That's five, six months away. So we'll be in touch. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. All right. Thank you.